You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 61, Ward Farnsworth, author of The Practicing Stoic. We talk about the psychological benefits of applying Stoicism, finding fulfillment in life, and changing bad habits amidst discussion of his chapters on judgments, externals, perspective, death, desire, emotion, and adversity. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Today's guest, Ward Farnsworth, is Dean of the University of Texas School of Law. He has written extensively on law, rhetoric, and chess. His prior books include Farnsworth's Classical English Rhetoric and Farnsworth's Classical English Metaphor. Visit wardfarnsworth.com for more information. I was eager to chat with yet another contemporary author reflecting on Stoicism and how this ancient philosophy in modern times can improve our lives. Thanks, Ward, for your time in chatting with me and sending a pre-release copy of your book. On to today's discussion. All right. Thank you for joining me today. It's great to be here. Great. So with me today is Ward Farnsworth, who recently released his book, The Practicing Stoic, a Philosophical User's Manual. What led you to... Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your uh, podcast. The book for me lies at the intersection of a couple of paths. One is just a long-term path of, of reading the Stoics, which I've been doing one way or another for maybe 20 years. Stoics and their successors like uh, Montaigne and others who are in the book. The other is that I like to write books that try to capture and make practical use of ancient learning. So I've got a book on rhetoric that, that takes rhetorical ideas that were very well established in ancient Greece and Rome and shows how they, they're used in English by people like Lincoln and, and Churchill and others. Mm-hmm. And this book follows a very similar format. It's trying to capture some knowledge that I think is underappreciated now. And amidst a modern revival of Stoicism, you index several topics or otherwise put many quotes together to give people some advice for everyday concerns. Yes. In view of the revival you mentioned and all the books that have come out about Stoicism lately, I probably should say something about why I thought another was needed. My my preference in studying Stoicism is to stick with the originals. I know there's a, a lot of books that restate Stoicism and there are those who love them, but my preference is to always read uh, Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius where, where possible because I think they had a way of expressing ideas that was brilliant and has not been improved upon. But I also know that there are many who find those books, those original writings, a lot less accessible than the restatements because mm-hmm. the original writings, when you go back to them, are not very systematic. Uh, those writers tend to jump around a lot and they it's, it's very difficult to find. If you want want to see everything Seneca had to say on the subject of fear or uh, desire or some other topic, you can't really do it because he might talk about it in three or four different letters and he might pop in, pop, pop onto the subject in some essay and then depart from it. Same with Marcus Aurelius. So what this book tries to do is sort of take a middle path where it, it presents what the original Stoics said, but it edits it and, and organizes it and presents it 
is in, in a way that I think modern readers will find accessible. Is, is if, if if the Stoics have sat down to teach a course in a systematic way about their ideas, the, the original ones had, I'd like to think that the book in, in 12 chapters presents how, how it might have gone. Right. My physical copies of the originals have a lot of margin notes. I write desire, I write chance, adversity, all of these things, and those happen to be the chapters in your book, so that's great. Yes, yeah, that's right. So the book, the book is supposed to have two audiences. One is people who are fairly early in their study of Stoicism and, and are interesting and interested in reading or taking a course on the subject taught by the uh, ancient writers on it. But the other would be people who already know a lot about Stoicism and might value the book as a reference because the book lets you look up a topic and see right away in one place what the different Stoics all said about it and what they said about subdivisions and, and how they, you know, you can, you can do comparative Stoicism. You can sort of see them talk to each other. Right. And for those audiences, we can hear similar perspectives from people like Schopenhauer and Johnson, you mentioned in the text, some that people might not be too familiar with. That's right. So the Stoics, of course, have many descendants, and you mentioned a couple of them. Montaigne, Samuel Johnson, Adam Smith is another example, Arthur Schopenhauer. All of these thinkers were heavily influenced by Stoicism. You probably wouldn't call them Stoics. They had too many disagreements with the Stoics on usually high-level matters. But on very practical questions about adversity or emotion or, or desire or death, they usually, or at least often, would subscribe to Stoic views, and they would elaborate on them in very interesting ways. So my view is that once you become a student of any given Stoic idea, it immediately becomes interesting to see what has been done with that idea by others who've come later and who are uh, brilliant in their own right. So, if, so once you understand Stoic teachings about desire, seeing how those very same teachings were discussed by Samuel Johnson or, or Schopenhauer later on seems to me to be a natural part of one's education. Good. We can have more of an eclectic view and draw inspiration from many schools of thought, many people, even Seneca's text. He's quoting Epicurus and some different authors of his time. Yeah, Seneca's view was he'll he'll quote the truth wherever he finds it, and he's not afraid to quote Epicurus mm -hmm. uh, where appropriate. And so the book also draws a little on Epicurus as appropriate, or on Cicero, who is a Stoic in some ways and in other ways not, or Plutarch appears prominently in the book, and Plutarch did not like the Stoics or didn't think he did. But again, uh, the way I put it in the book is that these philosophers of neighboring schools who you, you couldn't classify necessarily as Stoics, they converge as they descend, meaning that as they move from more abstract propositions down to more applied claims about the world, they tend to agree more. And so it's no surprise that whether or not Plutarch would have had any sympathy with Stoicism as, the, as he read about it from the original Greeks, agreed entirely with the Stoics about a lot of claims on, on, on the role of judgment in, in how we form our reactions to things, for example. And he appears a lot in that, in that first chapter. But my, it is my hope that one side service this book can do is introduce some readers to some some great writers who they'll really enjoy and who they might not have come across yet so they, if you have listeners who think they like stoicism but don't know that they have ever come across montaigne or johnson i, I hope they have a, a, some treats in store for themselves because those writers restate stoicism and discuss it in ways that anybody who likes the original should also enjoy good and some in modern times reach stoicism through maybe self-help or personal development literature or talks, you talk about the Stoics being more like modern-day counselors or psychologists, especially Seneca. Yes. So when the Stoics wrote, philosophy and psychology were not separate disciplines in the way that they're usually now considered. And so a lot of what I think makes the Stoics of lasting interest is their psychological insight. In fact, if you were to tease apart their psychological ideas and their, and their philosophical ones, I might suggest that their uh, psychological insights have held up 
and stood the test of time considerably better. They're more robust. Mm-hmm. So there, there are philosophical claims the Stoics made about nature that very few people believe now. But the Stoic claims about our irrationality, most people would still subscribe to now. And I think the reason that the Stoics are popular still and have always had a lot of enthusiastic readers is because their, their ideas about human nature are so profound and so lasting, not because the ideas about the cosmos are. And so, in other words, it's their psychology that I think has made the more enduring contribution. And I think what one audience for Stoicism these days are the sort, same sorts of people who enjoy reading cognitive psychology. They've read Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. or other books in that genre that talk about bias and irrationality and ways that we make ourselves miserable. And the Stoics, in many ways, are predecessors of those kinds of psychologists, in my view, or maybe to turn it around. I regard some cognitive psychologists to be, in effect, uh, heirs of, of Seneca. Right. A big overlap between cognitive behavioral therapy, rational motive behavioral therapy, and Stoicism. Right. Exactly. And some of the topics you discuss in your book, one is desire. You talk of unhealthy attachment in your book as something which guarantees anxiety and enslavement. Yes. So the the Stoics draw a distinction that I think is useful and sometimes underappreciated between things that are merely desirable or what they call preferred indifference and, and things to which people are attached. So it's not the Stoic view that nobody should want anything or nobody should, should want wealth and, and or should, people should not care about adversity. Seneca is pretty clear about it. He says, look, what, everybody would prefer to have wealth than not to have it. Everybody would prefer to avoid adversity than, than have it confront them. The, the, the question is not, do you prefer one or the other? The question is, what's your attachment to it? How unhappy are you when, when you don't have what you want with respect to the, the thing in question? And so Seneca's idea was our, our, the goal should be to hold these things lightly. You prefer wealth? That's fine. But the question is, how do you feel when you when you lose it? And if you can lose it without costing your, your equilibrium, you're doing pretty well as a stoic. Right. There's this question of what must be traded with what. And in order to achieve certain desires, to own certain things, we're going to have to exchange a lot of time, effort, maybe even mental anguish as well. Yes. The Stoics are keen students of the invisible costs and benefits of things. So the, the actual cost of, of anything you might acquire isn't just the money. It's the the time it takes, it's the anxiety it costs, it's the anxiety not only involved in in getting it, but the anxiety about keeping it and, and so forth. Even Epictetus jokes and says not to sell ourselves cheaply, but if you must, make sure to do so for a good price. I guess that's right. Yeah, that's not that's not that's not in my book, but that's in one of his that's one of his discourses. The Stoics, I see, is questioning wisdom of the crowd, things that maybe modern society might find to be very valuable. The Stoics are saying, well, actually, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Well, they go a little farther than that. I, they they say that a proof of the worst choice is the crowd, so that that which is popular is immediately suspect. There's a little anecdote in the book that's fun about a trainer uh, of wrestlers or, or boxers whose student is applauded for his performance. And when he comes back to the coach, the coach takes his staff and strikes the student with it and says, you should, you should have done better than that. If you'd done it right, they wouldn't have applauded. Because the, uh, <laughs> the, the applause is a sign of possible pandering by the student. And even in Seneca's work on the topic of fame or otherwise external validation, he says to be your own spectator and seek your own applause. Yes, that's right. He's talking about uh, substituting the des- for, for, away from the desire for approval from others to a healthier desire for self-respect. I think in that passage, he's talking about to, to, to his friend about wrestling with disease. And he's saying, uh, you don't need to have an audience to be a hero. You can wrestle with disease bravely, even, even in your bedclothes. 
today we see these concepts of the hedonic treadmill that we want more and more and more we're keep trying for it but we're never satisfied we want more and instead of having moderation in our desires people continue and this seems to have bad consequences the treadmill that's of course a good example of what i was mentioning a few minutes ago that's a very prominent theme in modern cognitive psychology and it's foreshadowed extensively and discussed a lot by the stoics and i sometimes wonder how much modern cognitive psychology is really added to what seneca uh, already perceived on the subject. Right. And these were ancient works where now we have so many more material things in society. We have access to so much more technology. In many ways, life has gotten better, but yet people are still unhappy. Yeah. And that's, I think that's part of why it's interesting to go read the original Stoics, because they're writing under such different conditions. And yet most of their observations ring so true. And you realize that the basic points about human nature don't change much, even if you substitute uh, one material situation for another. There's a great passage from Seneca where he's sitting in a, uh, a bathhouse and saying, well, here I am in this nice bath that would have been thought pretty great a generation or two ago. But now people think a bath is no good unless you can enjoy a view of the, the ocean from it or unless you can get a suntan while you're lying. And you realize he's talking, <laughs> uh, you know, 2,000 years ago, but in terms that you could easily imagine somebody talking now. And perhaps a lack of gratitude today where people are overlooking the things that are going well for them, the nice things that they have, the comfortable living situations, whereas the Stoics might worry about things like exile, torture, many of those things. Right. Wars breaking out. We're not going to be dealing with those today, certainly as much as they were dealing with them in times ago. Yeah, that's right. So the, the topics or the applications change in, in that way, but the principles are still the same. I mean, there are little glimpses of this that are, that's, again, that's part of the fun of reading, the, reading the, the Romans, is they'll be talking along in ways that are totally familiar, and then Seneca will say something like, uh, this is the nonsense for which we wear our togas threadbare. And you think, all right, well, we're, we, we aren't wearing our togas threadbare, but, but you understand what he meant. And, it's, and, and, the, and the point is still the same. Death. Stoics talk a great deal about this. They say that the awareness of our eventual death should lead us to live more productive and fulfilling lives rather than place us into despair. Death is the longest chapter in, in my book because it's probably the single, if you, if you divide stoicism into topics, maybe the topic we talk about the most. And they'll say things, Cicero said, that the life of a philosopher is essentially just preparation for death. And other uh, Stoics or people, writers who are more clearly Stoics, take the same position that death is really a central issue in the philosophy. Partly it's, it's because the, uh, the master fear that lies behind so many lesser fears and a lot of stoicism is about conquering fear. And so if you can avoid mm -hmm. the fear of death, you can probably avoid a lot of other sub fears also. But as you say, it's, it's also more than that. It's not just a fear they want to overcome. Their view is that if you really look death in the face and you're not scared of it and you remember that it's alongside you at all times, it can be a source of inspiration. It's not something to run away from or be afraid of. It's something to, to uh, remove the fear from and then treat as a reason for good living in the present because it may not last too long. There's this theme of the fragility of life in Stoic texts, mentioning that, well, things might change. You might lose these opportunities that you have now. And if you procrastinate, you may never have a chance to do what you would want. Yeah, Seneca has a line about that that I think sounds out of character to some people who haven't read as, as much of them as they might have, where he says, drain joy to the bottom, to, to, to the dregs without delay, enjoy your children to the, to the fullest because you don't know how much longer you have. And he says, as he puts it, you have to hurry the enemies pressing on your rear. Death is right behind you. And there are these metaphors with war, these comparisons, 
And if we were under siege in battle, you would think that people would make these adjustments so that they can go on doing what they will accomplish, what they want. But yet, when death is around us, people maybe squander their time. They're just scrolling mindlessly through social media at times yeah. or just not really accomplishing much of any value, tuning out. In some yeah, ways. one of the themes in the book that I return to a fair amount is how the way Stoics value, as I said earlier, invisible costs and benefits. And that strongly includes time, that the Stoics usually think we tend to undervalue time because it's intangible. We, we value property. Nobody gives away their property uh, lightly, mm -hmm. but people give away their time very lightly, even though for most of us, when you look at it rightly, your time is much more valuable than your money. And if you want to see that, just find people who are running out of money and people who are running out of time and, and compare how, how they feel about that. Yeah, we don't guard our time as, as carefully as our property or as carefully as we should in their view. And they spend a lot of time trying to counter that. And one way to do it is by dwelling on the possible imminence of death. Helping others, being part of a society, this cosmopolitan attitude is also a big theme in the Stoic text, to be part of society and help others rather than withdrawing right. from it. Right. That, that, that's another underrated Stoic theme is the, that they regarded public service or helping others as, as imperative. And I've, I've seen Stoicism sometimes described as a philosophy that leads to withdrawal, and I think that's a terrible, terrible misunderstanding. Right. Some people might see Stoicism as some sort of resignation or seclusion, right. but yet many of the Stoics we know today were very active in society. Seneca and Marcus Aurelius were two of the most powerful statesmen in the world, deeply involved, obviously, in public affairs. Whatever you might think of what Seneca did or the emperor he was involved with, he was not somebody who was living most of his life in retreat, although he was in exile for a little while. But but even on top of the, that, that example, Seneca is explicit about it in the chapter of the book on virtue discusses this, that his view is that uh, an, the, the Epicureans would say the sage does not get involved in public affairs unless uh, necessary. And the Stoic says that the sage will get involved in public affairs unless he cannot. So there's some self-awareness that comes with that to know our skills, to know our potential and to use it well. Yeah, that seems like a fair implication. That's not that's not a particular theme that they follow up as heavily, but I think that follows from what they said. There's a lot of talk of fulfilling certain roles and that life might happen to change. You might end up in this position, that position, and whatever we have to make the best of the situation and to apply yeah, virtue, yeah. right? To have mastery in what yes, we're doing. That, 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 that's right. That's a good restatement. We have coping with our own death. How about coping with the death of others, dealing with grief? What might be your thoughts on that? So that's a, a appears in my book under a different heading, a different class day, and it's in the, under the section on emotion. So I think grief presents a famous challenge to Stoicism, because the Stoics will say that we don't react to, to things, we react, react to our thoughts about them. But however you might try to change your thoughts about the loss of somebody who you, you loved, it's not going to take away the, the experience of grief. And I think Seneca has a very appropriate and humane attitude. He, he doesn't view grief as a mistake or as something we can entirely avoid. His, his view is it's, it, to some extent it's natural. And he knew what he was talking about. He, he lost a young son. And so he says that anybody who says that grief is something that, that can simply be uh, thought away is somebody who probably hasn't dealt much with it. So on the other hand, though, he says that the stoic goal is not to completely uh, avoid grief, it, though it's just not to add to it by the way we think about it, by going beyond what's nat what grief is natural and compounding it by thinking that we're supposed to feel a certain way or, that, or thinking about the loss in a way that makes it worse. One of the major themes in Seneca is just taking responsibility for your thinking and the effect that it has on you. And his view was we, we can easily make grief much worse by certain ways of thinking about loss, and there's no reason to do that. You talk about three different steps to perceiving events. There's the event itself. Self, 
the opinion and the reaction. But many people don't recognize that middle step, you say. But if we alter our judgments, we can improve our lives. Yeah, so one of the, one of the challenges running a book like this is figuring out what, what order is best for presenting stoicism. And I might invite your listeners to give that some thought because it's, it's just an interesting exercise. And it may be that, that no two would, would come up with all the same order for, for the ideas. But if you have to pick a first idea or, or a, a, fa- a most foundational idea in stoicism, my choice was the one you just mentioned. The idea that we don't react to things, we react to what we think about them or to our judgments about them. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, the idea seems strained because there are obvious examples where we, what we react to is not a conscious thought about whatever happens, but some deeply ingrained judgment. But that basic principle is a really fascinating one. And uh, the, the, the way that Epictetus expressed it is, one, is a line that Montaigne, the French essayist, uh, inscribed into one of the, the, the beams of the ceiling where he wrote his essays because he thought it was so valuable and profound. So I regard that as lesson one of stoicism because so much follows from that so much of the rest of what they talk about is okay now that you understand that that your judgments or opinions or thoughts about things are really what you're reacting to the next question is uh, how do you want them to be i mean if those are up to you so what's a rash judgment what's an irrational one and so much of the rest of stoicism is about exactly that it's about then marching through the the stuff of our inner lives of emotion and and desire and fear and all the rest and scrutinizing it and asking, all right, is this, does this make any sense? Is this serving us well? And and so forth. So some self-reflection on that. Someone might see the death of a friend, a loved one, even someone moving from place to place, and they might come to a conclusion, oh, this is the worst thing that has happened. This is the end of the world. How am I going to support myself now? They might jump to these wide conclusions that might not be so accurate. Yeah, so I think that's the first, that's the beginning of stoicism is you notice that you're reacting to what you say to yourself about something and what you're saying to yourself may be something that you haven't reflected much about. It's just a, it's just a conventional reaction. You're saying to yourself what you've been taught to say to yourself in response to whatever's happened. And then you're very upset about that thing. This, this is a disaster. I'm, I'm, it's gonna, it, it's, I'm ruined now. How can I go on? And the stoic view, or at least Seneca's view is, you really need to slow down and ask yourself how you really feel or think about it and whether all those reactions are, are necessary, because a lot of them, if you really examine them rationally, turn out to be nonsense. And some Stoics even take an approach and say things that we view as misfortunes aren't so much. These are inevitable things, but the good fortune is bearing these things nobly. Yeah, that's right. So there's a chapter on adversity, of course, and that's part of Stoicism is treating things that, that look unwelcome and are unwelcome. They're treating them as opportunities because uh, uh, although nobody wants adversity, that's sort of what it means for it to, to be adversity. It's only because of adversity that we get other things we want, things that we build in response to setbacks or aspects of character that only develop under pressure or under stress. So the stoic view is whatever happens, I make use of it. We could view it as a learning opportunity, a chance to grow. If life were this really super easy thing, we're never challenged what good would that be? Seneca talks about that. You have to remember that things that look like bad events, like, like, like setbacks, in the long run, often turn out not to be. It's very hard to judge things as they happen. Right. Even in Eastern philosophy, there, there are these thoughts about, well, we might think that this was a bad thing, but then, oh, well, I ended up having this injury in my leg, but then I right. didn't end up being drafted for right, a war, right. so I, I ended up not dying. Is that yeah, right? That's in the da- yeah. We might think of the that's worst right. outcome. That's in the Tao Te Ching, I think, where, where, where he ends up, the farmer says, uh, who can say what is good or bad? And that's a good example of a, of a theme. There are many of them. This Stoicism develops that you can also find in other philosophical and spiritual traditions. But I think the Stoics get to them in a way that a lot of readers find more appealing. Because although the Stoics had a metaphysics, most of the, the direct path they take to these conclusions is very reasoned. It's not based on, on faith. 
for the most part. It's based on careful observation of human nature and how people actually react in, in various situations. We might find ourselves in certain unhealthy habits, not only in ways of thinking, but actions that we take. How is it that we're to use stoicism and change our bad habits? Well, I don't think there's one answer to that. Part of the one of the pleasures of the Stoics, or anyway of, of Seneca, is that they understand different people have different temperaments and need to deal with them differently. So the book talks about this, and I think you were talking about it with one of your other guests, that, that there are people whose problem is anger. And for those people, they need to develop a certain set of counter habits to deal with the tendency to go off into anger. And that might involve reconsidering the opinions about things that lead you to anger. It might just involve waiting to act until you, anger's had a chance to subside. But he also says there are others from anger is not an issue. So the drier, they're not in danger of anger. They're in danger of depression or they're in danger of suspicion. And what they need are games. They need are, is the summons to cheerfulness because their problem is they're too morose. And he says it really depends on what your temperament is. You try to attack the fault that is most prominent uh, with its opposite. And so the the, the, right. the right strategy the, for, the, uh, for, for dealing with a habit is going to depend on the person and the habit. And it's not fatalistic in a way of, well, we're never going to be able to recover from this or that. Stoicism offers us a great degree of hope and also a realistic sense of change not happening overnight. We might have gradual change. When we see that change, we should be very gracious for it. Even. That, that's right. Especially that's important because, of course, stoicism is very difficult and it's sometimes been criticized as it's impossible. It's, it's sometimes been said to be impossible to do all the Stoics ask, which of course is, is no doubt true. But Stoics, at least the, the Romans whose work has survived, didn't think that meant that it was futile. There, there, may, there, there is some language, I guess, from Chrysippus that we have in fragments that, that, that suggests, and, and this has been criticized a great deal, that you either have virtue or you don't. And if you come up short, it's like drowning in a very shallow amount of water that you drown all the same. Seneca's view was there are stages of progress and that most of us aren't going to get very far in stoicism, but if we get a little way, we've done pretty well for ourselves. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing enterprise. And perhaps that's where moderation can come in. For instance, if a person has a very unhealthy diet and they make changes to improve that and maybe once a week have a small snack. If you if, if anger is your problem and you've man you can you can start counting the days when you manage to be free from it. And if you manage to be free from it for a week, then you can you can congratulate yourself on having gotten that gotten that far and make a you know, make a sacrifice to the gods. Right. I think that was Epictetus who had said that of having a, a Thanksgiving there where he noted that I used to be angry, right. but now I'm much right, better right. at that. Good. And and with these negative passions or negative emotions going away, we'll have more room in our life for positive emotions. The, what we think of happiness, what they would call uh, eudaimonia, which is a more complicated idea that different philosophers interpreted in different ways than we now usually think of it. The, the standard way to think of happiness now is basically you're in a good mood. And the Stoics were less interested in, in the good mood than in the good life. And so I don't think that, although there are signs of this in, in, in the Stoics, especially in Seneca, that actually Stoicism can, can be something that leads you to, to actual joy. I think their vision of happiness is not just a state of constant joy, possession of the good life, a life, a life that you can be pleased with. More of a lasting experience rather than, oh, well, the food really tastes good. And maybe you have that pleasure for the five or 10 minutes or the dining experience for an hour. And then maybe two hours later, that's gone. Yeah, I think it's, again, you, you made reference earlier to hedonic psychology and there are different ways of measuring happiness. And one is to talk about how happy somebody feels at the time. Another is to ask them more broadly how they feel about their life. And I think stoicism is more interested in the, in the second kind of happiness than in the first. And even a lack 
of negative emotions can really fit in that category. That's right. I think that's that's true. And that can one way that, that the Stoic leads a better life is just through freedom from certain kinds of anxieties or fears, as well as by adherence to, to virtue, which, of course, the Stoics thought was necessary for happiness and also sufficient for it. Even the word contentment comes up quite a bit. Yeah, there are other words that they they come along with that they associate with happiness. For example, uh, tranquility or or uh, peace of mind. But but in the end, the, the you know a difference between Stoicism and say uh, Epicureanism is a Stoic view that you you need to pursue virtue as a philosophical imperative, and from that happiness is, is a byproduct. But it's very hard to achieve happiness directly by saying let's let's go out and try to make ourselves happy. Go out and try to be good, uh, to be virtuous. And when you do that, what you find is that. You get happiness by the wayside, but it's very, it's very hard to achieve happiness in any, in any other way. And a lot of others have thought that. The book quotes a passage from John Stuart Mill, who took the same view, and many others have taken the same view since. It's often, as the book says, a point that's rediscovered by modern authors with much fanfare, but just the idea that happiness is much easier to achieve as a byproduct of efforts in other directions than it is to achieve through you know, very direct efforts at it. Good. And even surrounding ourselves with quality people, as Seneca would talk about. He talks a good deal about friendship in his texts as his letters were written to a good friend. Sharing your life enthusiastically with another person can increase that happiness, but yet we're not to be totally reliant on another. Yeah, the Stoics regard uh, friends as important. They just want you to pick them carefully. As the dangers of crowds, we mentioned that earlier, right? The poor behaviors of others can rub off on us or we can compromise our virtue to try to win that popular. Yes, they talk about uh, it's like a, 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 a burning charcoal next to one that isn't. They can, either, they can either both be lit or they can both be put out. And so you've got to choose your companions carefully. I'm here chatting with Ward Farnsworth, author of The Practicing Stoic. You talk of envy and social comparisons, mentioning that we have a habit of comparing ourselves to those of higher positions rather than taking a broader view. The way the Stoics work usually is that they'll pick something that bedevils us, like envy, and first they'll analyze it and try to show that it's uh, irrational and pointless. And then they'll talk about antidotes or things that can be used to, to counter this, just practical strategies for how to think in a way that makes us better off. And so some of that is just learning how to value what you already have. Instead of looking at what others have that you don't have, you can look at what you do have and imagine not having it and think about how much you'd want it if you didn't have it. And they all talk about that. But they also talk about comparing yourself to others who are worse off than you are. And you might think that seems like a philosophical mistake, because if, if envy is the, the irrationality of making yourself unhappy because others have more than you do, why should you make yourself happier by looking at others who have less than you do. It seems like the opposite error, although it makes you happier rather than unhappier. I describe that as an example of pragmatism in the Stoics, where there, it, it may be, it's very practical because most people do feel better when they reflect that whatever they wish they had that they don't, that somebody else has. There's usually a lot they have that, that others don't. And there's a funny passage from Samuel Johnson where he's talking with Boswell and Boswell saying, I've heard this advice, but it can't really work, right? Because aren't some people so badly off? There's nobody worse off than they are. And Johnson says, well, probably, but there's nobody who knows that they're in that position. Everybody, no matter how badly off you are, you can always find others who, who to you seem even worse off. So it's not so hard after all. There's even that sense of gratitude of, oh, well, look, this person might lack a home. This person might lack this certain thing, but I have that. And aren't I fortunate to be in right. that position rather than living in squalor or without the ability to even talk or walk? Right. The stoic view is that 
people habitually have this bad habit of looking up rather than down or ahead rather than behind, thinking about the few who are doing better than they are, whatever they're trying to do, and forgetting about all the others who are behind them, looking at them. With right. And even these things that we want can largely be outside of our control, such as fame or good looks or reputation, right? The Stoics talk a good deal about Yes. Well, that's, and that's, of course, a whole other theme, which is that uh, there is, as Epictetus says, there are things that are up to us and things not up to us. And if you're going to worry about things like the ones you just mentioned that are not up to us, then in his view, what you'll be as a slave. Right. We can make a very good effort to try to attain this. And that's what we're to be focused on, right? The the effort and the process rather than the outcomes, something that can largely be outside of our hands. Right. That's. I mean, if I mentioned the first teaching of Stoicism, at least as I presented. The second one is the one you're talking about, which is the Stoic relationship to externals and the idea that, that what we ought to be spending our energy on are, are those things we can control and not getting attached to things we can't. And so these two ideas really go together. The th- that which we can control, uh, that would be our, our mindset, our opinions about things. Externals we can't control. And so Stoics, I view, is trying to move one's psychological center of gravity to a more useful location away from externals and toward how you, how you think about them. There could even be an argument for goal setting and that we have this thing that we'd like to achieve. We can question, how do I go about getting this, what kind of effort would I need to put in to get to a certain position? You you talk about games in your book, and you've recently authored about chess. So there can be, well, I'd like to be of this certain skill level. And oh, well, what am I going to need to do to accomplish this? We can come up with a plan to do that, maybe a goal that can be realistic. And this has to do with the notion we touched on earlier of sort of the, the invisible costs and benefits or prices of, of things. That if you, you, you think you want a certain goal, uh, there's certain things you have to do in order to get there. And, and you either are ready to, to pay that price or you're not. And if you're not, then you shouldn't rue your failure to get the goal. You didn't want to spend what it took to get it. And there are a lot of things in life that you might like, but you don't want to spend the money. And this is no different. For something like chess, you might have to put in a lot of time studying, maybe watching some educational videos, reading books, maybe get coaching, analyzing your own game, right? That's going to take a lot of effort to get that. Whereas a person might say, oh, well, this is just something I want, but they're not willing to put in the effort. Well, they're probably not going to get that. Yeah, result. I'm afraid chess may be a, uh, too trivial an example, but it works, it works as well as any. And in your book, you also talk about games. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages from Epictetus and imitating those who play at dice, that the counters are indifferent, the dice are random, but what we are to make use of is that which turns up and apply our skill and yes. diligence to that. Yeah, that's a great metaphor. And then Adam Smith develops it a little further. And that passage is also in the book where he talks about Stoics as viewing life as a mixed game of skill and chance. And that if you're attached to winning the game, you're doomed to a certain kind of anxiety. But the Stoic approach is to be attached to how you play it. And that's under your, that's under your entire control. If we have that wrong goal of winning, we're not focused on the process. Well, if we have a good process, we could make the best effort and end up losing at the end of the day. But maybe we can reframe what it means to play well or to win and not be so attached to a specific right outcome. i think that's right the stoic view is you 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 interpret winning as being a certain way of playing and if you played in the way you wanted to play then as far as you're concerned you 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 won in many ways stoicism could be that mastery of life of just trying to be this actualized person trying to live this examined life and live well yeah that would i guess that would be the large-scale application of the idea all right. Anything else that you'd like to discuss as we're coming up on time? No, here? I appreciate the chance to chat about the book with you and to 
call it to the attention of your listeners. I hope those who haven't had a chance to, to dig into the ancient writings of the Stoics might find the practicing Stoic a, a fun way to do it because it takes all that they said and, and organizes it and presents it in a way that's, I hope, uh, accessible and something like what you might have expected if they were all around now to teach a course on the subject. And, and if there are those right. who already know all about it, then as I mentioned earlier, it might serve as a place where they can go look something up. You're thinking about the Stoic view of some emotion or the stoic view of some particular life problem and the book gives you an easy way to go check out what all the major surviving stoics had to say about it very good something for people just getting into stoicism maybe a recommendation for a good friend or relative or for people who are quite knowledgeable seeing the viewpoints of other writers who've been inspired by stoicism or at the very least a reference tool that can be yeah. very helpful well i hope so so uh, thanks again for having me on it's been a pleasure thank you and how can people find your book uh, it should be available at Amazon now, The Practicing Stoic. Uh, also, thepracticingstoic.com is the webpage for the book, and it'll have uh, links for places to purchase it. And for them to contact you, how could they reach out? Yes. Yeah, so uh, at that page, or there's a link in, at uh, wardfarnsworth.com. There's information about this book and about other projects that I've done, and, and also uh, contact information if, if somebody wants to write. All right. Very good. Thanks for reaching out to me and for your time today and recording. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Have a great day. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one -on -one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group, Fairyland, from their album, Score to a New Beginning. Audio edits are brought to you by John Bartman. Thanks to donors and fans who support my work, share content, suggest guests, offer inspiration, and provide ideas for improvement. Have a great day.